Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions. Before we dive into the episode today, where I talk with a former colleague of mine from the university about evidence-based practice and how we can implement it in daily practice, I wanted to take a moment and share some feedback that we received at the clinic that I own, Proactive Rehab and Wellness, here in Augusta, Georgia. Now, we've talked about on the show with many guests uh, about the need to make healthcare more of a human experience, how to remove it from the, a simple transaction to really a long-term relationship with your patients, with your clients, so that you can get deeper, you can hit those precipitating factors or their underlying factors that might be affecting a patient's condition or diagnosis. So about six months ago in October, we began at the clinic, we began administering a CARE survey, C-A-R-E-S survey. Um, And it's a questionnaire that asks patients 10 questions and it's all about the Uh, interpersonal interactions that the patient has had with the clinician in that encounter, in that healthcare encounter. So everything from did the patient uh, feel warm, uh, welcomed, and listened to during their experience at the clinic? Did they feel like they were able to tell their story, that their story was heard? And that sort of thing. So we, you know, as as just manner of, of practice, everybody comes in, after they have their eval with us and they get one of these surveys, it's completely anonymous. And we received this feedback, which I thought was just a great testament to the, just not so much me, but the staff, (laughs) the, the clinicians and the culture that we've built at Proactive. And this person said, as a clinic administrator and healthcare executive for over 10 years, this experience has been refreshing. You all have to share what you have here. You were definitely winning, exclamation point. From beginning to end, I had a great experience. And it got me thinking a little bit, like, why was this such a great experience for this patient? Now, I happen to, to know the patient who was, who was filling out the paperwork, so I followed up with them later at their the next appointment and said, hey, you know, thanks for the kind words. I just wanted to, to find out what, what was different about this experience or the last time you were here than your you know, traditional healthcare appointment. And she said, quite simply that she felt that she was being heard, that she was being treated, her words, treated as a human. And it just struck me that, you know, something very, that we might take for granted as healthcare practitioners, as people running hospitals and healthcare systems and making decisions in order to improve efficiency and improve the quality of care, we can never forget that at the end of the day, Patients that end up in our clinic or in our healthcare system, or if you're a clinician still that's treating patients that end up across the table from you or, or you know, on the exam table, 
next to you ultimately want to be heard. And what we can do is, as clinicians, as individuals, is to harness the power of relationships to help our patients overcome you know, limitations or pain or achieve their goals and chart a real and holistic path towards long-term healing. I mean, after all, that's what real, effective, and value-based care is all about. It's not about, I'm going to build this unit, uh, this treatment code, and get reimbursed um, because that's standard practice. It's really about um, helping patients become empowered, if you would, um, towards their long-term healing. If you want to know more about that, um, it just so happens Rehab You Practice Solutions has a program called the Ultimate Patient Experience. And if you want to learn more about how you can get some feedback like that at your clinic, you can head over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com slash UPE. That's rehabupracticesolutions.com slash UPE. But enough of that. What are we going to talk about today on the podcast? Today, I had the great pleasure of having a conversation with a former colleague of mine at Augusta University. Her name is Dr. Teal Benavides, and she's um, quite honestly just, she's incredible. Um, I love having conversations with her because she's one of those clinicians and one of those academics that really has a firm and solid grasp on research and research process, but she's also able to communicate it in a way and to teach students how to practically apply it in their day-to-day. So I don't know about you, but when I was going to school, when I was in grad school, evidence-based practice and research was, was one of those things that was highlighted as being important, and it was also highlighted as being very complicated. <laughs> and um, many students that I, I went to school with, we all graduated and, and you know we got out in the world, we started treating patients, and we never really felt like we had a firm grasp on how to take this high level, this very heady idea of what is evidence-based practice and take it and apply it into our day-to-day real-life patient experiences and patient interactions. Well, over the course of my time teaching at the university, teaching at Augusta University in their OT department, I happened to be able to co-teach an evidence-based practice course with Teal, and we took an approach that was very different from what was the norm when I was in school, and it was entirely case-based, so the entire course was a, um, a, there was a case example every week, and we used those case examples to build in the skills for the students of how to take, um, let's say, a research question about what is the most effective treatment or what is the most um, accurate test or diagnostic tool or whatever it was, and find the research for it, explain it um, to their peers and other stakeholders, and then kind of roadmap how they would apply it in their day-to-day practice. So it was super eye-opening to me, and I know the students definitely grew in their skills as evidence-based practitioners as a result. So Teal and I were able to sit down and have a conversation about how clinicians can take the steps to implement evidence-based practice in a real practical way 
in their day-to-day, you know, depending on whatever patient interactions they're having or specific clinical situations, how we can begin as clinicians to kind of build our knowledge base, expand our skills and our scope of knowledge into what is current according to the literature and what is truly um, treatments and assessments that are effective and shown to be effective by the literature. We also talk a little bit about some of the problems with gating content and uh, open access journals and how to how to wade through the climate and the environment of kind of predatory journals and all the stuff that's out there so hopefully you walk away from this interview with this conversation with some real practical uh, tips and tricks and uh, strategies that you can employ in your own day-to-day practice or if you happen to be a manager or an administrator that you can help your clinicians implement in their day-to-day practice to help improve care at your clinic or your organization. So without further ado, this is Dr. Teal Benavides talking about evidence-based practice and practically applying it in your day-to-day life. Well, hey, Teal, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Rafi. How are you? Thanks so much for having me today. I'm doing wonderful. I'm excited about talking about this topic in particular. So Before we dive in, why don't you just start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your work, your research, and we'll kind of go from there. Super, yeah. So uh, I'm an associate professor at Augusta University. So pleased to be here, been here since 2016. Um, I am primarily a research faculty. Um, I engage in research to understand access to care for individuals on the autism spectrum across the lifespan. So really trying to improve how people are able to get access to the things they need in order to maintain their health and well-being. Um, And in addition to that, I teach, uh, I primarily teach the research curriculum at Augusta University Research and Evidence-Based Practice. And I've been doing that since 2005 um, for quite some time, um, both at a previous institution and here. And I'm so pleased to work with students to see them grow in their knowledge of evidence-based practice which is the topic of today. Thanks exactly. Yeah, nice segue. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, I think I, I've mentioned this in the pre-show, but, you know, just being able to teach with you. So you and I taught evidence-based practice last year, I guess, if this is all like pre-COVID or into COVID. Um, yeah. And I really liked how you were, one, teaching not only what is evidence and what is evidence-based practice, but really giving students like applicable and practical steps that they can take to kind of implementing it, which is what we'll talk about today. So obviously a lot of your teaching is in the whole research and evidence-based practice and and kind of developing future students and into clinicians that are gonna practice EBP. What are the biggest factors you see in whether or not a clinician, once they're out in the field, is practicing what we call evidence-based practice or evidence-based medicine or or whatever the, the term is these days? I mean, that's a really great question. It's fairly complex. I think that um, there's a couple of main things that I think affect students' ability to use the skills and knowledge that they've uh, learned about in school when they get out into practice. And, um, you know, when I I think about them, um, I'm an OT, so I'll think about mainly, I'll talk about the intrinsic factors within that new clinician, and then also those environmental contextual factors, if you will, that are external to that new grad. Um, so primarily, you know, when we when we see students graduate and get into practice, 
one of the biggest predictors of when, or, when they're going to use evidence in practice is whether or not they feel like they have the knowledge and the confidence and competence to easily read and interpret the literature. So um, right now, the literature on COVID is coming in quite quickly, um, and it, it takes a lot of time and energy to read those articles and understand the statistics. And so oftentimes new grads, if they don't feel prepared or confident in being able to read that information and um, interpret it, they won't do it. Um, and so we really focus on developing those skills in the, in the graduate program, um, helping students practice over and over and share what they know and then check them on that learning. Um, another set of um, factors that really impact students as they graduate and, and leave and go into clinical practice is their environment that they're in. And so when I talk to old graduates and I read the literature about this, um, usually the graduates who are continuing to stay up to date are those that are in innovative practice settings that tend to um, support evidence-based practice. They tend to have journal clubs. They tend to have um, weekly staff meetings where people are sharing um, new research or talking about research. Um, those settings also tend to involve clinicians in research. So sometimes those environments also are engaged in collaborating with researchers to understand the interventions and the assessments that they're using. So the environment is really critical for those new grads. Um, and it's one reason I always encourage our students to ask their potential employers what kind of resources they have to engage in evidence-based practices. Yeah, yeah. So you kind of, you laid out the groundwork here. There's some intrinsic factors, kind of the, the skills, the competence, and then there's the external factors, kind of the environment. So let's dive a little bit into the, the intrinsic and then we'll move into that extrinsic factor. So what, what might be some of the reasons where a, a, cl a clinician or maybe a new grad doesn't feel skilled in the ability to kind of read and interpret and implement the research? Yeah, that, um, that one's challenging because I think <laughs> I sometimes struggle with reading new statistical approaches in an article or understanding some of the more complex things that researchers are doing. Um, every day, research is not a static thing. There's new research designs that are being used and new statistical approaches that are being implemented. And I think that oftentimes um, the being able to read and interpret the results in the tables um, confidently is, is a challenge. I think for a new grad in particular, um, it's daunting. Um, and one of the things that I, I don't know if you've found this to be true, but sometimes the, um, the discussion of a, of a research paper is not exactly aligned as well with the results. And, um, and when people skip over that results section, maybe because of lack of competence or confidence, um, it can impact what they do, they might misinterpret um, the, the the article. So I think that the confidence and and competence in interpreting statistics, understanding p values, effect sizes, all of those things are are pretty um, pretty challenging for a lot of people. Yeah, and you kind of mentioned it too. Like if you skip over the results into the into the discussion, I'm assuming you're talking about people that are also just maybe just screening like abstracts. And they're screening abstracts, looking for something, you know, they're maybe they're treating a patient with COVID or maybe they're treating a new novel 
you know, a diagnosis for them. So they're combing all these abstracts looking for evidence and they might just not be super, super confident in even how to filter out the bad abstracts, right? Oh, I think absolutely that, you know, that is a, a, you know, a mindset that you can get into, right? Which is I'm looking for certain evidence to support what I'm doing. So I'm going to screen, I'm going to read the abstracts and I'm going to select the ones that um, support my positionality on a particular approach. And I think that's a dangerous trap that people can get into if they're not going into it with the mindset of, of um, really wanting to understand, is this approach or is this evaluation um, going to be effective or is this evaluation going to be reliable or valid? So I think you bring up a really important point that seeking to confirm one's yeah. you know, position is, um, is an intrinsic factor, right? I mean, if we go into the literature hoping to find something, we're probably going to find something to support it. But if people are not being critical thinkers when they're reading, that's dangerous. Yeah. So sort of that confirmation bias, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I think we all do it. But, you know, we just have to remind ourselves not to. Yeah. <laughs> are there any tips or tricks you got for students or new grads that, that are getting into this, how to kind of check themselves for, for confirmation bias other than trying to be more self-aware? <laughs> you know, one of the things that I that I frequently encourage is, is um, don't just discard a study because it doesn't find statistically significant results. I think automatically people look to see are the p-values statistically significant and if it's not they assume that it won't inform their understanding. But in fact I, I ask them when they when they do that I ask them well if there isn't a true difference, isn't that just as important as if there was a true difference? So, you know, making sure that we aren't just automatically ditching the studies that don't find differences between a treatment and a control group. I mean, one reason is maybe the sample size was too small and a larger study needs to be conducted. But another reason could be maybe there aren't true differences. Yeah, maybe it's an ineffective treatment. <laughs> between um, two different intervention approaches. Right. So, you know, that's one automatic thing that I think people do is just ditch a study because it's they don't find statistically significant findings. But that's one way to prevent confirmation bias is to be open to studies that find significant and non-significant results and then really dig in to see why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think you and I have had this conversation before, too, about the skills of clinicians and all that. And I think that we do need to draw a delineation between you know, new grads and new practitioners that are coming into the field, which I feel like are light years ahead in their ability to determine what is a statistically significant change. You know, like they're able to read statistics and p-values and really understand what they mean. We've got a whole generation of clinicians that, are, that might be near the end of their work life, if you would. They're kind of phasing out of the profession, but mm -hmm. they're kind of in charge, right? They're the management of these new clinicians and they're coming from a standpoint of just not having the skills, right? They were not really trained in school because evidence-based practice is something that's kind of been pushed to the forefront over the last maybe 15, 20 years, but there's a whole crop of clinicians that went through school that didn't get that training, right? Yeah, the first EBP article in OT that really emphasized this was a Eleanor Clark Slagle lecture back in 2000, I think, Margot Holm did an Eleanor Clark Slagle lecture on evidence-based practice. So, you know, we are talking about 20 years ago when it first became a big push 
um, in our in our profession. It's been around for quite a bit longer than that in um, other professions, other medical professions. But you're right. I think that for practitioners who've been out in the field for at least that long, um, they've had to either teach themselves how to search for the evidence with all these new electronic search databases, um, how to read the evidence. Um, and I don't know about you, but when I'm looking at the continuing education courses, I'm not seeing a lot yeah. out there as to how to interpret the evidence. You know, I'm seeing a lot of people presenting that their approach is best, but I don't always see people teaching some of those uh, thoughtful approaches for really digging into what you're reading. So I agree. It's I think there are going to be some generational differences as as the uh, cohort of people who are learning and applying evidence move up um, into different positions. Yeah. Well, and I think part of that too, around continuing education courses, I wonder how much of that is like regulatory, you know, like uh, for a, an OT in Georgia, for example, to renew your license, you get so many hours that you need to do. And the bulk of those have to be direct patient care and whether or not learning how to read research counts as direct patient care really dictates whether or not somebody clicks purchase on that course, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but you're you're completely correct that people are looking for those more hands-on types of continuing education courses. And hopefully those educators are including the evidence to support what they're teaching, um, but there isn't any substitute, I think, for just reading the, the literature and exactly. staying connected to that. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, and then kind of in that same vein, it kind of segues into those external factors. So you've got all these clinicians that might not, let's just say, not value the understanding of, of research, or maybe they're just intimidated by it because they don't have the skills or whatever. And now they're managing these essentially big departments, whether it be rehab departments or hospital systems. And we're creating environments that may or may not be um, beneficial for, for new grads and new clinicians to come out and practice evidence-based medicine, right? You know, I think it depends on the setting. I think you're right. I think that if um, it depends on the manager and it depends on the setting, I think that in some settings, um, the, you know, the management has to stay up with the latest literature, even if it wasn't something they engaged in. So for, for example, I was just talking to colleagues who are up at the Philadelphia Hand Center and um, graduated long before EBP. But in hand therapy, for example, the, um, the surgeons are using different approaches. The healing times are different because of new materials yeah. or new suture approaches or whatever it might be. And the hand therapists are really on it. I mean, they have a ton of new literature all the time to synthesize and um, adapt clinical protocols. And so from that perspective, that environment, even though there are a number of um, older clinicians, they have been, I don't want to say forced, but it's part of the ethos of that environment, right? And um, again, that's that external support. So because it's emphasized, because it's probably part of that team approach where you have the physician, the surgeon, the, the therapist, the hand therapist, um, all talking about evidence, if the therapist isn't up on their EVP game, they're not going to feel very much a part of that team. Um, and so I think that in those types of settings, the, the clinicians are, are staying up with the literature, in fact, probably much more than in other settings. Um, I think, though, that 
if you have clinicians who have maybe been in um, private pediatric practice, are relying on older literature, um, maybe don't have the resources in terms of yeah. funding to, to pay for access to articles that are sometimes 30 or $40, um, then it becomes a lot harder. And, and quite frankly, the evidence base on that is slower than in hand therapy. Um, you know, the evidence in pediatrics is much slower to come out. I'm still reading things that are talking about the same thing that we published 20 years ago. And I, yeah. I don't understand why we're not seeing advances in pushing the envelope as to what we need to advance practice in certain practice areas. And so it could be the clinicians, right? But it could also be the way funding is structured to support different practice areas. It could be the Or what gets team, published and what doesn't what get gets published. published. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm not as quick to put the blame on, on clinicians older, although I do think that there are some things that reinforce people not seeking out the literature, you know, like the, the financial pieces or yeah. the lack of literature. Every time I go to search, I, you know, I'm not finding very much, right? I mean, I think we hear that quite a bit in certain practice areas. Um, for quite some time, I think mental health was quite stagnant, but now it's, it's growing again. Yeah. In terms of when you bring health. up a good point too, about the financial thing too, like when you're talking about finding maybe three or even just three or four articles and they're 50 bucks a pop, 40 bucks a pop, whatever you're talking, you know, a couple hundred dollars to figure out whether or not this treatment technique is even worth it. Like it's hard for a clinician that's may or may not be being paid in addition to what they're currently, you know, their salary is like a lot of people right. don't have a little stipend to go do research. Right. Right. And, and I think that, you know, this brings you back to that regulatory piece, right. Which is that every clinician is required to engage in continuing education. I was pleased to see that in, in Georgia and many other places, um, and even for NBCOT licensure, um, you know, uh, doing a critical review of an article counts towards those um, yeah. elements of maintaining one's practice because it is expensive. I mean, it's, it, it is a financial investment, but um, you know, those clinicians, if they're seeking out evidence and they don't have the funds to do it, they need to partner with academic institutions so we can send them our students yeah. <laughs> and then the students can be working yeah. to help um, promote the use of evidence, right? I mean, partner with an academic institution, take fieldwork students, and then ask your students to obtain access to the articles you need or want. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's what that was our strategy a long time. You know, we're getting student, some students from y'all actually in the next couple of weeks at my clinic. And I'm like, start thinking about what we want to pull <laughs> research. That's wise. right. That's and right. I, I think we had talked, you know, we talked offline last time kind of around this whole issue of access, right? Like mm -hmm. some some organizations, publishers, that sort of thing are really restricting access to their their articles. They, they see them obviously as intellectual property. And a lot of times like mm -hmm. the researchers aren't getting those $40 for each time that article is sold, that's going straight to the publisher. So there's like a financial mm -hmm. incentive to kind of keep those paywalls up. But during the last year, there's kind of been a, some opening of that, right? Like some more open access journals and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, um, I'm not sure to what extent COVID has impacted. I'm sure you'd probably know a lot more than than I. But, um, you know, the open access movement really started, I want to say, back in 2010-ish. Um, people started really talking about open access journals. And um, it's, it's hard because there's a, for researchers anyway, there's a really... Um, unclear line between predatory journals that are yeah. just seeking to take 
uh, your money and it doesn't matter whether or not it's a quality article. It just matters that you pay them money and they'll yeah, put pay it the out publish there. firm or something like pay that. Publish. But there are some reputable um, open access journals like um, British Medical Journal and um, um, PLOS, um, one PLOS Medicine, a lot of those. And in those situations and those types of reputable open access journals, the researcher pays or, you know, sometimes it's a funder of the, of the, that's paying the researcher to do that work will pay. Um, and usually the article costs about $3,000 to publish. So if uh, I was to have an article accepted, those journals would say, do you want to publish it open access? And if I choose yes, I pay a fee of about $3,000. Um, and then everyone can get it free of charge. Um, and so th the researcher doesn't, by the way, make any money even on, off of those open access ones. The money is still being paid to the publisher. It's just um, making it freely available to everyone else, which is a, is a good model to follow because it means that the research is more quickly implemented into practice. Um, I mean, I think the going number right now for time between a study being published, it turning into a practice you know, something that's done is seven years. Is yeah. that, is that what you've also that's read? Correct. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Which is a long time, especially since those researchers have worked hard to get those things out there as quickly as possible, but practice takes practice change takes a long yeah. time. Part of that is knowledge translation and all that as well. Um, part of when I think about this open access, you know, movement, you know, part of me is very excited because I believe like access to to information should be free and we should, you know, the internet has allowed us to bring information to the masses, but how do we we prevent kind of the pendulum from swinging the other way, if you would, from this this one area of it's very locked up, you need to pay to, you know, pay to get your research articles almost to the other way where it's kind of like the wild west and like anyone with a blog can can pose that something's accurate when it's really not. Like how how do we kind of wade through this the vast array of open access journals and find which ones are reputable, which ones aren't, and where we should be spending our attention? Oh, that's a that's a loaded question. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the million dollar question right there. If you can figure that out, you know, I think um, particularly in COVID, that's been challenging. Um, and here's why. In um, pre-COVID, the, the need or desire for certain types of research didn't push um, sort of the speed of publication up so much. I mean, there's yeah, obviously yeah. some types of research that need to be published quickly, but there hasn't been a need for something in one particular area like COVID. Now people need information and they need it quickly because people are sick, ill and dying. Um, and so what ended up happening over the past year is we saw a shift towards people posting pre-publication results, so non-peer-reviewed evidence on preprint servers um, with very little oversight of the research. Um, and um, there have been a number of retractions of that research after it's been um, after it's been put out there, but people still continue to rely on it. So that's a concern. Um, and and you're, you're asking, how do we prevent that from happening? And we're seeing it happen right now because of COVID. But I don't know if we're going to be able to put that back in the box of yeah. you know, this is something we aren't going to be doing. I think a lot of people have found value in posting their results into a preprint server. 
Um, it increases the access, it decreases the time from finishing a study to publication, um, but it makes it harder for clinicians to know what's reputable. I mean, that was your question. How do we know yeah. what to select? What is What has been peer reviewed? There used to be a predatory journals list that, that was published. Um, and some of the journals that were on that list sued to have their names removed from that list. So it's no longer um, publicly available. Oh, but wow. there are some sort of websites that will tell you, like these are predatory journals. But I notice our students pulling from them. I mean, I, I notice our students don't know. I mean, it sounds like a great journal, you know, like the International Journal of whatever. And um, there's really no clear indication that it's a predatory journal that is pay, pay to publish. I don't know. What thoughts do you have on that? Well, I, you know, it's it's a complicated issue because I do think yeah. that obviously during during something like the, the pandemic where we're trying to get information out there very, very quickly, like we can't wait for the peer review process, right? And there are problems with the peer review process as far as, you know, whether or not something decides to get published because, well, you know, the, the results are or are not politically, you know, motivated and all that. Um, but I do feel like for the vast majority, just from like a behavioral psychology standpoint, people go for easy, right? And if the, the ask of evidence-based practice is already hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> so then to put the added burden of, well, now you need to go through and like look through these preprint servers and determine for yourself whether or not this is uh, research and data that we should be using is a very hard sell, I think, for people. And what you're probably going to have is people that scroll through, they see something. And again, we're humans, cognitive bias, you know, confirmation bias. They'll say, oh, look, this is data from a, a researcher. It's got to be right because it confirms my belief, yada, yada, yada. So it's a, it's a tough nut to crack for sure. <laughs> I know. I'm not sure what, uh, you know, I think, I think one, one thing we're going to have to do is start teaching our graduates how to, to tell whether or not something is um, a reputable journal, right? We, we, we teach people how to critique study design and read statistics, but I mean, um, there was some, I ha I'll have to share with you, there was some research done where a group of researchers said, we're just going to see if we can scam the system. We're going to write, write up a, a great sounding study, right? It sounds great. Study design sounds perfect. We're going to make up all the data and we're going to try and get it through peer review process. This was um, because they wanted to show that it doesn't quite matter yeah. what you do, as long as you write the right things, right? You use the right words and they were able to get it published. And then they, they revealed that, um, you know, this is a bogus study. And it was a real eye-opener for um, people, like on, on my end, I do um, editorial board. I'm on an editorial board of two different journals, AJOT and the Autism and Adulthood Journals. And we got noticed that this was happening. So when we read studies as, you know, uh, an editor, we have to be thinking, is this, is this a real study? I mean, is this plausible? Is it feasible? Are these real people? Is this their expertise um, before we send it out for peer review? But, um, you know, if studies are being posted on a preprint server, there, there isn't anyone doing that, right? Yeah. <laughs> people can really choose to put whatever they want out there. Um, so I, I think, you know, my recommendation is for clinicians, continue to rely on peer reviewed evidence, unless you're really confident 
in um, reading research, I wouldn't use um, some of that preprint server stuff, honestly. Yeah, make sure it's been you know, vetted and validated. Make sure it's been vetted and validated or rely on a group think. You know, if you find a good article and you're not super confident in it and it's a preprint for something new like COVID, you know, critique it with a group of people so that you're aware of the potential uh, major biases that are at play. So I, I mean, I don't really know if there's gonna be another solution. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's as good a solution as any, right? The The last question yeah. here that we got is what practical strategies could you give a clinician to implement kind of the habit of, not just the habit of evidence-based practice, but more, more specifically the habit of searching for and utilizing the evidence, right? Like I think when we say evidence-based practice is a really big kind of nebulous term, but really what we're talking about is searching the evidence kind of critiquing it and then using it or not using it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the most um, the most effective tool is practice. Uh, I mean, how many times do you have to taste a new food before it's okay to you, right? Um, how many times do you have to engage in a new habit before it becomes second nature? So um, what we try to do in, um, in an education setting anyway, is just ask students to practice it. Low stakes, practice, search, search for the evidence. You know, we're gonna give you um, 10, 15 minutes to find an article for this clinical case and um, use those skills. The more people practice, then the more um, quickly those habits will become ingrained. It won't be as hard. Usually when students come in to a program, it takes them about an hour to an hour and a half to do a search of the literature. My goal is by the time they leave, about a year later, they can do it in about 10 to 15. And we get yeah. there. Um, so practice, that's the first strategy. The second strategy is to do it in a group. So I think it's always more fun to do journal clubs with others. Um, and there's a lot of evidence actually to support journal clubs as an effective way to engage in evidence-based practice. So sharing the burden of finding the evidence and critiquing it and then talking about it um, in a rotating way in a journal club um, helps people to stay engaged without, um, you know, having having to be the one responsible for the critique every week. So I think um, employers and clinicians, if they can find a group of people they enjoy meeting with and talking with about this, make it fun, bring food, you know, um, do food. something that is enjoyable, go to the coffee shop. <laughs> I mean, there's other ways to make it fun too, yeah. but you know, is this is a family show. No. <laughs> bring a bottle of wine, but no, um, you can edit that out. Um, <laughs> I think that, I think that, you know, the initial aspect of it and what we might get that to confirm your thought, but Others might be reading it with a different mindset. And so doing it in a social setting is helpful. So practice, engage in journal clubs or other social reviews of the literature. And then and, um, the third thing I'd recommend clinicians do is partner with an academic um, setting who can um, both support your evidence needs. We talked about finances being a burden. You know, if you take a level one student once a year, you can, you know, you know, ask that student to engage in this process. They should be skilled in it. 
and they can help you find evidence as well. So I always think that students are a really helpful um, way of promoting that in settings where there might not be the financial or time resources. Um, so take fieldwork students and partner with an academic setting. Um, and, and academic settings are willing to do that. They want to do that. We, we want to see those collaborations happen. So those are the three main things, I guess. And then I guess, you know, maybe the fourth one, and, and this is a little bit harder to do, is when you're interviewing for a new job, ask, demand, put it in writing. Yeah. You know, I want access to X amount of money per year to allow me to purchase articles, or I'd like to purchase a subscription to whatever journal, um, and I'd like that to be part of my compensation package. We don't see people asking for what they need, right? I mean, I think that should be a part of our daily practice. And then if the employer is not providing it, they, you can ask. So that's something that clinicians can do. I think that's a little bit harder of a sell um, in some places, but um, those are the things that I would think of, think of doing. Yeah, no, that's a great list. That's awesome. Um, well, Teal, thanks so much for taking the time and being on the show. If people want to, I know, find out about you and your research, where can they do that? Uh, so our Augusta University faculty profile pages are up. Um, I'm happy to share that link with you. Um, and you can also reach me at tbenavides at augusta.edu. I'm happy to share that email with you as well. Sure. Yeah, we'll link to all that in the show notes. Well, thanks so much. Awesome. Thank you again, Rafi. It was good to see you and, and uh, talk about this important topic. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Teal about how you can take this giant, uh, somewhat intimidating notion of evidence-based practice and apply it in day-to-day, day-to-day practice. Or if you're a, like I said, if you're a administrator or a manager and you're you have a team of clinicians, how you can mentor them into making evidence-based practice part of their daily routine, part of their professional development if you would, because again, we're all trying to do what is best for the patient. And that means making decisions based off the best available evidence at the time, right? I think listening back to, to our, the conversation, it became, again, really apparent how mul- much of a multifaceted issue this is. It's not something as simple as um, trainings training clinicians on how to look up the evidence or do anything with the research or, or find the, use the keywords. There's also the added complication of the time that is involved in doing it, the resources that are available. I mean, some of these studies, you know, 40, 50 bucks a pop to buy a research study to, to read it. Like you do that for every single patient of your day and you're, you know, maybe you're looking for one or two articles, you know, that's, that adds up really quickly. Um, and then it doesn't get any easier by the fact that there are these predatory open access journals. So it's definitely a tough nut to crack, but, um, I'm very grateful for Teal for taking the time just to, to share with us some of her insights and her, um, tips and strategies on that. Um, just because it's, again, it's, it's a really important, a really important topic that has direct impact on the quality of care that we deliver to our, to our patients. Um, so yeah, that's all I've got to say about that topic. Um, if you like the show, head on over to 
Apple, leave us a rating interview. It helps people find the show. If you want to get notified when we drop new episodes, which we, we drop usually every other Wednesday, we, we release a new episode with sometimes a bonus episode in the off weeks, uh, you can head over to www.betteroutcomes.show and you can sign up there for the email list and we'll shoot you out um, a copy of the, or a link to the, the episode and a, you know, a little synopsis about it and right to your inbox. You can, can you follow us there and keep up with what's going on? If you want to learn more about how Rehab U Practice Solutions can help you increase patient re- engagement, uh, decrease your cancellation and no-show rates, and, uh, and garner some reviews and feedback like I read at the beginning of the episode, you can head on over to www.rehabupracticesolutions.com slash U-P-E. That's uh, Rehab, the letter U, Practice Solutions dot com slash UPE. Until the next time, guys, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.